Hey there, Happy New Year! Burke Allen here for the Big Time Talker Podcast and our first show of the new year, 2023. The Big Time Talker brought to you by our friends at SpeakerMatch.com, the world's largest online virtual speakers bureau. If you are a speaker, or maybe you're a speaker planner, you uh, have a platform somewhere and you need a great speaker, take a look at the virtual marketplace at SpeakerMatch.com. We talked to a lot of great speakers on our Big Time Talker podcast in 2022, some entertainers, number one best-selling authors, and today it's a retrospective look at some of those most interesting people that we chatted with in 2022, and especially in the spirit of folks pulling themselves up by their bootstraps and giving life their best shot. That was definitely reflected in our guest today, and we'll play some excerpts of those conversations The uh, decade off to a rocky start, to say the least, with COVID-19 still lingering, felt all over the world. And since March of 2020, most of us, many of us, have found ourselves in moments where we have truly felt defeated and low. Now, as 2022 came to a close, a long-awaited sense of normalcy, the world began to heal, things are beginning to feel a little better. No matter how low you go, It can always be worse, and we've spoken with dozens of folks who found major success after facing off against insurmountable odds. Now, whether that's recovering from betrayal, uh, completing a long-term goal, unbelievable health challenges, the guests that you're going to hear today have shared truly compelling stories about their lives and accomplishments. So sit back, relax, and listen in as we revisit some of the most compelling conversations from 2022 on our Big Time Talker podcast. Let's start off now with the authors of the Amazon number one bestseller, The 20-Year War. Three friends, two of them Special Forces veterans, Dan Blakely and Tom Aminta, teamed up with their pal, award-winning photojournalist Bo Simmons, to write The 20-Year War. It found major success as things began to wind down in Afghanistan. And we talked with Dan, Tom, and Bo about how they found their inspiration to create this very powerful coffee table book of visuals and text around the veterans of the War on Terror. Uh, I mean, so it started in 2020. Um, I decided to move my life from California to North Carolina to be closer to Dan, who is my childhood friend since we were about four and five years old. Um, obviously Dan served in the army as an army ranger and that's how he met Tom. But when I moved closer to Dan, I wanted to create a photo book on some of my travels across America of all the different like Western and cowboy culture that, um, I kind of associate myself with outside of our company. And, um, I think it was around the time that Dan was starting to want to give back to veterans himself. And I recently did a a, a project beforehand where I was photographing a different art series uh, for a gallery. And then I was donating proceeds to a veteran organization called Heroes and Horses. And so when Dan heard about that and saw it featured on Fox News, um, Dan kind of presented the idea to me and was basically telling me, hey, you know, this photo book that you want to do sounds like a great idea. Why don't you do what you love doing? And let's do a photo book on veterans who have served overseas in the past 20 years since next year this is like i said back in 2020 2021 would mark the 20 year anniversary of 9 11 and gwat so that's kind of how the whole idea got started was 
through uh, Dan and I. You know, I keep, I keep telling people it was unfortunate, perfect timing. Um, because we we knew that the 20 year anniversary was coming up we knew that there was a deadline to pull people out of afghanistan um i think tom and i and a lot of people from the veteran community and even active duty service members uh would have never imagined that the pullout happened the way that it did um when you know the decision was made to to uh you know remove all troops from afghanistan uh, I definitely thought it was going to be more of a phased approach and and more strategic uh, in nature, but obviously that didn't happen. And so when those images started flashing, you know, across the scene or, or uh, across the screen of you know Afghans trying to flee Afghanistan, um, a lot of our partners uh, that even I served alongside with the Afghan army and the Afghan police, um, it was kind of hard. It was hard to see it all, but. Uh, you know, it was one of those things that I would have never imagined that would have thrust us kind of into the spotlight because, you know, we were the only authors out there with a book titled The 20-Year War. And across every single headline at that time was the 20-Year War coming to an end, the 20-Year War, you know, seeing uh, seeing it realized, you know, all these different titles. And so um, being in the spotlight and trying to give a voice to veterans and just how we were feeling about the entire process um, was really important. And honestly, I, I think Tom feels the same, probably, you know, we're definitely honored that we were able to share some of that insight and how we felt. Um, but it was definitely a, a difficult time. Um, exciting for the book, but difficult for us as veterans to process. Dan Blakely, Tom Aminta, and Bo Simmons, the co-authors of the 20-Year War. I have a copy of this photo book on my coffee table right now. And it beautifully and powerfully illustrates the diversity of our military and the veterans and all those who've committed so much to our country and to this effort. Up next, I had the pleasure to catch up with my pal Landau Eugene Murphy Jr. Landau was the season six winner of NBC Television's America's Got Talent. And since that win in 2011, Landau's toured all over the country, all over the world, released four albums. One of them uh, was a Billboard jazz chart topper for six weeks straight. His most recent, Landau Live in Las Vegas, recorded at Caesars Palace with a prestigious Seller Live jazz label. Now, I personally have had the pleasure of getting to know Landau better and better and traveling all around the world with him through his great career. 2022, no exception, Landau performed in Atlantic City, Hollywood, New York City, Las Vegas, and we even took a trip all the way to Dubai, where Landau headlined at the World's Fair. It's called Global Expo 2020, and uh, for Global Expo 2020, Landau was the headliner at the USA Pavilion. Even more important than his, his win on America's Got Talent to Landau is what he did with his time when COVID shut the world down, including the entertainment industry. Landau found himself uh, at home, unable to tour and entertain others. So what did he do with that extra time? He found the drive within himself to finally earn something that was always missing in his life. Landau went back to school during COVID and earned his high school diploma. Well, I actually get to walk across the stage for my graduation, so... I'm happy about it. Oh, yeah, man. It took a lot of work. <laughs> Crazy. All 
all the numbers and alphabets together was just weird. <laughs> I mean, we always remember algebra, but when you get down to doing it, it's like, dang, I can't even remember how, you know, the hype song for X. You know, it's just, it's crazy. So you got to learn, you got to learn the definitions of the of the questions before you can even start to solve that for the answer. So I think, as I got older, I got more mature and wanting to learn it. I mean, when I was a kid, I was a daydreamer. So I was always dreaming. I would sit in the class and I would, knew, I would know the work that the teacher was talking about, but I just wasn't paying attention. I was busy looking out the window. You know, Mentally checked thinking out. About, thinking about riding my bike or playing with my GI Joes when I got home. It was just, my mind was somewhere else. And so even when I got to high school, I loved sports. But I just wouldn't focus in class when I was after I would come from basketball practice or basketball class. I mean, I was thinking about the game. I wasn't thinking about what the teacher was talking about. I mean, I didn't care who discovered America. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I didn't care, you know. And so it seemed like things in my world history class or geography classes that I knew just based on common sense or just self-taught knowledge that because I watched a lot of documentaries and science channel and things like that. Like I knew about Pangea before my teacher was even like teaching it. Just like a lot of the teachers wasn't embracing that my mind was always outside of the box. And I think that's what teachers need to figure out today when it comes to students is how to tap into the things that they are really, really good at instead of just pushing them in the corner and telling them, no, shut up, we're not teaching that today. And that's that's what I kind of went through. I mean, I didn't get like, I had a great teacher by the name of Mr. Wills in like uh, the fifth, sixth grade at Harding Elementary in Detroit. And even in his class, I would daydream, but he started like putting in VHSs and letting us watch ge geography shows and, and you know, uh, science stuff. And then he would make us write an essay after, you know, and I was like the only one in class that can complete like a five page essay of what I just watched. And that's when he knew my potential. He was like, man, you're a good storyteller. You're good at, you know, observing things. You have a photographic memory, you know, and I could, I could say words that a lot of kids in the class didn't know how to say. Like when they seen photosynthesis, they were like, Pfft. and I was right, like, right. it's photosynthesis. And he was like, how did you know that? I was like, I mean, look at the word. I can see that sort of sentences. It's just things like that that I was really good at. He he grasped onto those. And that's when I started getting like A's in science. And I knew science and math was my great subject. And then and then once I got to uh I guess like an 11th grade, I started going to this night school uh at Henry Ford. And I had this wonderful teacher named Miss Smith who taught me algebra like that. Like in regular school, I just didn't get it. I guess it was just too many students in the class, too many distractions. But when I went to night school, she showed me algebra so easy. And then once I got it, it was like, this is so simple. I mean, I'm I'm whistling while I'm doing my work. And I got an A plus in algebra, one, two, and I think even three, man. And, and that was just a moment where I, I realized that I wasn't, you know, as dumb as a lot of people thought I was at the time. That conversation happened the day before Landau walked across the stage to pick up his high school diploma back in our mutual hometown of Logan, West Virginia. 
Congratulations to Landau. And if you'd like more information on adult education and the Never Too Late to Graduate campaign, it's all over the Internet. Just Google Landau and West Virginia Adult Education to find resources for you wherever you are in the world. Up next on our Big Time Talker podcast, retrospective look at 2022, imagine for a moment that your life is turned completely upside down. Those closest to you, your family, including your spouse, turns their back on you. And you're put in jail, in jail for over four years for a crime you didn't commit. Well, that's exactly what happened to our next guest, attorney Bruce McLaughlin, well-respected, very accomplished attorney from the wealthy northern Virginia suburbs right outside Washington, D.C., experienced a horror that is unimaginable if you're a parent. Bruce went to jail, did hard time after being accused falsely of sexual abuse against his own children. It took Bruce years to clear his name. He wrote about it in his book, He Said, She Said, which is now being developed in Hollywood. Here's our conversation with attorney Bruce McLaughlin about what went into proving his innocence. The, the book uh, is a, an acronym for capital S, capital A, capital I, capital D, sexual allegations in divorce. It's a unique uh, subset of sexual abuse cases involving usually a parent's children can be both uh, uh, a an allegation made by a father or by a mother against uh, the children of the parents. And uh, the interesting irony is is that in most sexual abuse of children cases, children we know tell the truth. And uh, those cases are predominantly true. In this subset of cases, which I want to highlight in the book, a lot of people don't know, that would be the public, uh, jurors, judges, lawyers, particularly prosecutors, don't know that where there is a divorce, as you pointed out, a contentious divorce was mine, involving children that sometimes, in fact, oftentimes, unfortunately, one parent tends to make a false allegation um, by instilling false memory in children to report uh, sexual abuse by the other parent if that other parent is alienated and separated by court order from his children or her children uh, against uh, the, uh, the, the other parent, which then uh, gives that parent an advantage in a court, uh, in a divorce court. Well, I, I felt, uh, Burke, uh, Did devastated. you see it coming? Did you see the guilty coming? I, did not see it coming. Uh, and maybe it's just because I knew in my heart I was innocent and I thought the jury would figure it out. The problem is, is that I took it too lightly. I didn't oppose with every single fiber in my body uh, the accusation of this, this crime when it happened. And, and I would encourage anybody who goes through this to fight it 
and to fight it uh, vehemently when it does happen with anything and everything that you can throw at the system. Because the system sometimes, as we all know, does not work for everyone. Uh, sometimes if you don't have enough money, uh, I'm a black person or an Hispanic, I don't get a fair, necessarily a fair defense. Uh, if I am accused of child abuse, uh, I sometimes don't get a fair defense because the average layperson thinks that children are telling the truth. Sure. I sometimes don't get a fair defense if uh, the prosecutors are hiding evidence, which was, in fact, in uh, notes that were written by my ex-wife telling the children what to say. We weren't able to get those notes in our uh, trial, which the jury could have seen and compared with what the children were actually saying in their testimony as sometimes 180 degrees different. It, it, uh, it was a, a harrowing experience. Uh, th there was a time when, when the, uh, the bailiff called out the jury verdicts and my knees buckled. And I looked back at my mother and my brother and they were crying and I was crying. And uh, the bailiff put me in shackles and led me out uh, the other door of the courthouse heading towards the jail. It was at that point I realized this is not going in the right direction. Well, it's a scary proposition on many fronts. People can understand that. Uh, it's mainly this pang of loneliness that haunts you wherever you go. When you hear bars 24-7 opening and closing and uh, jailers telling you where to go, when to go, what to eat. Uh, and you get a sense of alienation from the world. You are sometimes put behind bars by yourself and you have to live with yourself and you have to confront your own demons and you have to um, persevere. That then coupled with the fact that you have to defend yourself because sometimes you're not in with the best of company. And in the jail system, in the penitentiary system, and everybody knows your crimes because they're always published in the newspapers and somebody will invariably spread the news that you are on the second tier of the, uh, the, the hierarchy of uh, offenses that uh, fellow inmates considered to be worst to the highest, that the worst is being a snitch, someone who tells on other inmates and those people are the bottom rung of this hierarchy. The second level, right not far from that, are uh, convicted child molesters. And so I had this stigma attached to me that was like a, uh, it, it was like a noose around my neck. I think one of the worst things was being knocked cold and hitting a table uh, by a convicted murderer who I was playing chess with just because I had made uh, a good move on the chessboard and he didn't like that. Well, I, I had the, the, um, uh, the confidence of a 
the confidences of a very good attorney in the Leesburg community. Uh, his name is Alex LeVay. Uh, Alex cared about uh, my case. He, he uh, was approached by my mother, who he was really fond of, and took the case in large part because of her pleading with him. Uh, and he was prepared and he engaged with me and he wanted to know every single bit of evidence and he wanted my perspective and he spent the time and the toil necessary to be the most knowledgeable one in the courtroom when time came to try and convince a jury of your innocence. Bruce McLaughlin's book, He Said, She Said, is available at Amazon.com and bookstores everywhere and is currently being developed in Hollywood to become a limited series. In that book, Bruce talks about the broader world of false sexual assault allegations. It was a horrible experience for him, and he spends much of his time today helping others falsely accused of that and other crimes. He knows all about it after that path to prove his own innocence. Up next on the Big Time Talker podcast, look back at the year 2022, our conversation with business executive Roger Smith. Now, Roger found success early in his life in the life insurance business. Eventually, he went on to become a major executive in that industry. But that early success fueled his addictive personality. And his addictions nearly got the best of him, nearly took his life. Took a big wake-up call for Roger Smith after a suicide attempt to finally commit to setting things straight in his life and getting it in order. Here's our conversation with Roger Smith. Yeah, I, you know, unfortunately, I wish I had reached my bottom, started to change, but I did it. But I, I think that reality started to uh, come to play. Uh, my friend and I were walking down the street and uh, he ended up like throwing a trash can, trash can through a pawn shop window and grabbing a watch or something. And all of a sudden we're running down the street and it was the middle of the night, but the pawn shop owner was there and he ended up uh, shooting my friend in the back and, um, you know, and, and I kept on running. And so, you know, looking back at it, I sit there and go, you know, there, but by the grace of God, go I, I mean, right times that that things could have gone so bad and you know i just i consider it a blessing that that i'm alive that i've had the success that i've had because i can't figure out another reason for it you know (laughs) i got kicked out of high school in my first three months because uh they wanted me to wear socks with my sandals and of course out of principle I wasn't going to allow them to tell me what I could wear and how I could wear. So I started on, on what was called um, uh, toluene. And it was, like, it was like sniffing glue, but they used it as a solution to clean off barnacles off of ships. So, I mean, that was, that was kind of the start of it. And, um, and then it moved very quickly. I had a friend who ended up working on the docks at one of the, uh, at Santa Monica Hospital. And so he was grabbing, stealing, taking 
um, you know, morphine um, uh, vials. So then we moved on to morphine. And so it was morphine, heroin, uh, downers, you know, that was, that was kind of my life there for about three or four years. Then it moved the other way. Then it moved the exact opposite to like cocaine, amphetamines. <laughs> Went from downers to uppers is what it was. You were working off of what was supposedly an endorsed lead. So yeah, it, it, it allowed you to get into the home. It allowed you to get your knees under the table with mom and pop at, you know, at the kitchen table. And then it was a matter of learning how to, how to close. Um, I think a breakthrough moment for me was they had a monthly magazine. And at some point, I made it like in the top 50. And from that point on, I literally had that sheet on the mirror of my bathroom and I would cross off the person right ahead of me. You know, it was like, it was like a hit list. And I'd keep on crossing off, kept on moving up, crossing off, moving up till I was number one. But I really do think that it was the repetitive, what, while other people were doing four or five presentations in a day, I was doing and willing to do nine or 10 presentations in a day. So I think it was that breakthrough moment that said, hey, if I work really hard at something, I think I can overcome the, the obstacle, no matter what it is. Roger Smith has gotten a real second chance at life and has spent the past nearly four decades sober in his career as the CEO of major insurance companies. He's recently retired, has written his memoir, and now spends his time helping others turn their companies around and helping people turn their lives around and get them on the right track. Roger Smith, truly one of the good guys, and it was an honor to talk with him on our Big Time Talker podcast, brought to you by SpeakerMatch.com. All right, this time of year, lots of people try to bail out of cold weather and make it to a warmer climb. I've got a horror story for you with our next guest, Janet Sanders, a very successful business executive, former wife of one of country music's legendary Oak Ridge boys. Janet lived very peacefully in the U.S., but loved to vacation south of the border in sunny Mexico. Eventually, she found her dream home on the Yucatan Peninsula. However, Janet ran afoul of the local cartel, was confronted by corruption by local police and the cartel. Well, I don't want to give away the entire story, but I'll tell you this, she was forced out of that dream home by a mob of machete and gun-wielding thugs. They took the life of her animals, destroyed hundreds of thousands of dollars in her personal property. She's okay now, back in the USA, but Janet has now committed her life to warning travelers about the dangers of shipping off to sunny Mexico. Here's Janet Sanders. But when I started researching Yucatan, what I found was they reported it to be one of the safest places in the entire world for expats to go to. Well, that's just not true, right? That's the report they put out and that's the, the marketing they put out, but that's just not true. So we had actually done our research. I researched for over a year before we settled on the Yucatan Peninsula. And we settled on it primarily because it was supposed to be safe. But the real criminals over there, it's not just cartels you have to look out for, you have to look out for the police as well. 
and none of this gets reported. And that's kind of what happened to us. We ended up getting robbed by, by the police. And as such, we're fighting an uphill battle right now making this row. So years ago when we found the place, and I'm taking you back about five years right now, like I said, we looked and we looked and we looked and we found this spot and we liked it. It was on the beach. We liked it. It was remote, just outside of a little tiny Mexican fishing village. Everything's moving along. We paid our rent a year in advance. We don't think there's a problem. And in November or October it was, Gabriella, Adam's wife, showed up at the property with a lawyer and his name was Markle Maya. I had no idea who he was. And she walked onto the property and she had 20 men with her. Most of these men we, we recognized because they all looked for Adam. We'd seen these guys around. And she tells us that we're squatters. Huh? We know each other, Gabriella. She says, we've never met. I don't even know you. And her lawyer says, you need to get a lawyer here right now. Because the way they settle things in Mexico isn't anything like in, in the States. Well, this is a Saturday. Gabriella, we'll get a lawyer. We'll come down on Monday. We'll bring all the rent payments down so you can be... She's still insisting she doesn't know us, that we're squatters. We've only lived there for 30 days, all right? And at this days. point, you've been there how long? Five years. Wow. Five years. So the police get there, and her and her lawyer are swearing to the police that we're squatters, that she doesn't know us. And so we get out. Many, how, how many times have you talked to this woman in five Oh, my years? goodness, half a dozen times. She's been to the house. She's, you know, um, she was an architect. So when she wanted to show somebody things that she had designed, she'd bring them over to the house. I'd bring out the lemonade, right? I, I mean, she knows us. So it's coming out of left field that she doesn't know us. And then she tells us why she's really there. She says, no, you're leaving and I'm taking all of this. Because what we had done to the property, she was never going to be able to do. So it wasn't just the infrastructure she wanted. She wanted the stereo systems and she wanted all the electronics and she wanted the jewelry. She wanted our safe. She wanted all the furniture. She wanted everything that we had put over there. So the police get there and we get out the lease and we get out all the rent payments to her husband. And she tells the police that she doesn't know her husband. Unknown. And my husband says, Carol Gabriella, you have two children with this man. And I, you're not going to believe this, Burke. It's got to be in Mexico. She says, I could have two children with a dog for all you know. She's still insisting. Now, the cops aren't quite knowing who to believe. And my husband steps forward and in perfect Spanish. He says to her and to the police, if you don't know who Adam Kowalski is, then tell me why all of his employees are here today. And you can see the cops kind of doing Chinese math in their head. And they're starting to figure out that they're not being told the truth. So they escort her from the property. We had no idea what to do. We'd never seen anything. She literally just came on. She was going to steal everything we own. What do we do? Well, we have to find a lawyer. Police officer in charge of the Yucatan State Police. His name is Marco Maya Lopez. So on January 19th, Marco Maya Lopez had a few of his cops run protection for these guys. They brought 40 armed men over. They call them a choque gang. Choque literally in Spanish translates to crash group. They came in, they held us hostage for 22 hours. Now, when they first came in and I saw this group and I knew they were there to hurt us, I told Gabriella, I said, this is not necessary. I'm just going to call trucks. I'll get our stuff out of here. We'll be gone. You're not leaving with any of this stuff. This is all mine now. I'm taking everything. Is what and she that was told whole, you. That's what she told me. And that was the whole reason I she wanted. She 
she uh I don't think she thought she could rent it if she didn't have all the creature comforts and amenities and furniture there and she knew that we were going to be moving out here from the next three to six months you know it's the term of our lease and so the money was going to end and we were going to take everything and I'm I'm really convinced this was just a, a robbery but what she did was now Gabrielle Cornelio is related to the number one guy in the Yucatan State Police and his name is Saiden Ojeda and so they put their cops at the front of the gate and they wouldn't let anybody in to help us and these 40 guys we barricaded ourselves in the house and as we were barricading them, the attacks would come in waves and the sound. And Burke, you've been working with me on this for a long time. It's been a long time since I could even talk about this because it was so traumatizing. The sound was not like anything I've ever heard in my life. It was like fireworks going off in the house. I don't know how these kids come back from war. I mean, it was, it was so traumatic and it was so intense. And, and there were so many of them. And they kept coming in waves. And we were barricaded upstairs. That was a two-story house. And the staircase actually had a curve. So you'd come up and it would actually curve around the corner. And we were between waves and we were upstairs and they cut off all of our power. We have no air conditioning. It's hot in the house. Um, they've killed one of my animals already. One of my other animals is injured. Um, and we're trying to figure out our way out. And we sat there talking and we have with us one of our help, Armando, right? Well, one of our other guys, Juan Carlos, had thrown himself over the wall into this field and buried himself in just foliage and garbage and, because they were hunting for him. They knew one of ours had made it out. So they probably hunted for him till three, four o'clock in the morning. They were over in that field with flashlights. I couldn't figure out what they were looking for. They were looking for Juan Carlos. And Armando and I were in the house and we're having us talk about 300. And, and okay, we might die tonight. We knew that. We might die. But let's see how many of them we can take. Right, we take them two at a time. So the first thing we did was the whole downstairs is that big Mexican pile. So we covered all the downstairs floors with oil, every oil we could find in the house, coconut oil, olive oil, canola oil, any oil we had. We, we created a pool of oil that covered the entire floor. And then we started greasing up the stairs, bleach and shampoo and oils, anything we could find to make it slick. And at the top of the stairs, we, we started stacking dressers and nightstands and any furniture we can find, chairs and benches. And then we set up with a little bit of power we had on our, our phones and we started researching how to make weapons out of household items. I'm gonna go MacGyver here. So we started making uh, Molotov cocktails. We got every aerosol can we could get our hands on. We made blow torches. We um, got every heavy thing we could find in the house, big vases, our weight set, Right, I had all our weights, and then we got every knife in the house, had everything lined up, because when that last attack came in, we had these big sliding glass doors and a big giant, uh, probably twelve foot long table that sat outside. They came through that window with that table. I mean, the sound was deafening, and we could see them because now they're trying to climb the side of the house, and we can see them on the outside. And we can hear them coming in, and when they hit that oil the crash that went on, we knew, okay, we might have a chance because we heard them hit and we could tell they were panicking a little bit because this wasn't going to be as easy as they thought it was going to be. So sure enough, those first two came up the stairs and Armando had a vase probably four foot tall, maybe weighed about 75 pounds. And that, that vase was the first thing we crashed down on. And those two guys right back out. And the next two came up 
and we got them with blow torches, all right? And they don't like fire. We figured that one out. They didn't like fire and they wouldn't run it out. Well, I'm not sure what all they were saying, but they were talking about how they couldn't get us, get through us the stairs. So then they started coming over the balconies, all right? And Joe was on the balcony and all he had was a stick and he was like jamming this guy, trying to get him off the balcony. I mean, they're coming up behind him and Joe's got one phone going and he's screaming and up at the front are all the townspeople and the cops are holding them back and they can hear this going on at the house. I mean, it is, it sounds like a war zone. They can hear it. This is one, this is one too many stories. And it is, and I hate that it had to happen to me, but I'm not the only one that this has happened to. Right. I'm not the only one. And it doesn't get out in the press because they kill they're journalists. They kill more journalists in Mexico than they kill anywhere else for a non-wartime country. That's right. They, they kill them. They don't want any of this to get out because if it gets out, their tourism dies and they make too much money off the tourism. That's where all the cartels are being fed because you got to remember there's a secondary market for the cartels, everybody coming to do their drugs. So it's not just the tourism, but you got the drug money underneath it. So if we want to end this, if we really want to end this, and if you really want to stay safe, you just don't go. And finally, on the Big Time Talker podcast, we wrapped up our year by speaking with absolutely one of the most inspirational people I've ever had the pleasure of talking with, Rear Admiral Kyle Kozad. After three decades of serving our country at the highest level in the United States Navy, suffered an accident that left him paralyzed from the waist down. Did he retire? Did he cash in? Did he give up? He did not. And that's the subject of his book, Relentless Positivity, from Ballast Books. Rear Admiral Kyle Kozad's story of turning that life-altering diagnosis into a challenge to overcome is the subject of our conversation. And by the way, Kyle did walk again. Here's our conversation with Rear Admiral Kyle Kozad on the Big Time Talker podcast, uh, it was <laughs> it was a household injury, um, and uh, and quite frankly, you know, I, I have little, if any, recollection. But the best I can piece it together, we lived in a, a historic home that was built in uh, 1830s. It was burned down during the Civil War and then rebuilt, and so it had very narrow, thin stairs that went up to our uh, master bedroom. Uh, and a very low banister. And I, I stand six foot four uh, on a good day. Uh, and as I was shutting off the lights and went up, I must have lost my balance. And I, I probably fell down three or four steps. But, you know, the impact, uh, you know, was was just perfect enough or imperfect enough that I broke uh, two vertebrae, completely smashed them uh, and suffered uh, a severe spinal cord uh, trauma um, that uh, they, they categorize as an incomplete because it didn't sever the spinal cord injury, but the damage uh, was uh, irrevocable and, uh, and permanent for me. So no feeling below my uh, waist. I, I immediately went to medical retirement. How am I going to support my family? I'm the breadwinner. Uh, we're going to have to you know, move into a one-story house. Um, I'm never going to be able to do the things I used to do. Uh, and you know, the worst thing for me was I'm going to have to spell, sell my hot rod uh, and uh, get a minivan that I'll drive around with in the rest of my life. And so you know, that, that's kind of the, the weird uh, immediate thoughts that you have. And then um, you know, about two days later, this is, I, I think I really credit this as the first stage of my relentless positivity. Um, my nurses, uh, you know, they would come in every four hours. 
Uh, and, you know, I had a stack of pills that I had to take. And, you know, as, as I, you know, became more lucid and aware, you know, I would ask, what's this for? What's that for? And I had, you know, the typical painkillers, blood thinners, you know, the things that would make me heal. Um, but also, uh, you know, the one that really struck me was an antidepressant. And I, I asked the nurse, I said, you know, what, so what's this for? Do I have symptoms? Do I have everything? And, you know, she, she quickly said, uh, um, she said, well, and then she paused. Uh, and then she was very uh, guarded in the way she talked about this. She said, people who suffer a life changing injury, like the one you've suffered, you know, will, will quite frequently go into a very dark place. And, you know, there'll be uh, thoughts of self-harm uh, and maybe even suicide. And, you know, that, that was kind of a slap in my face that, you know, my life had changed and I realized this, but it wasn't over. You know, I, I still felt inside that, you know, number one, you know, you don't have to worry about me with those dark places. Uh, as a matter of fact, I'm going to turn this around, you know, better than it was before. And so, you know, I, I really made a decision that day that, you know, I could either lay in bed and I could feel sorry for myself uh, and for the next 50 years ask, you know, over and over again, why me, God, why me? Um, but instead, I chose to, you know, look for the 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 silver lining, you know, what what's my new purpose? What can I do? Uh, what can I show people? How can I make a positive difference in the lives of others? So uh, that kind of started, uh, you know, the whole um, surge of relentless positivity following my accident. You know, through my physical therapy, I, I was, uh, my wife calls me a step counter um, because I started and I can remember the, the first day <laughs> they pulled me out of a wheelchair and I stood up on a walker. And, and so step one is I've already proven the doctor wrong. I'm standing up. Yep. Uh, and I, I and think about, you know, the the physical act of walking, how you have to, you know, we take all these things for granted, but I was like a two-year-old kid, you know, how you have to shift the weight, how you have to pivot a hip, how you have to throw. And again, I've got, you know, whatever it is, 40 pounds of, you know, lifeless meat uh, dangling uh, below my torso uh, that I got to figure out how to position. And so I learned to do that. And, you know, one step turned into 10, 10 turned into 20. And every time I would go to physical therapy, you know, I would push myself if, if nothing more, take one more step than I had in the previous session. And, and so, you know, that turned to a life where today um, I exclusively use a walker inside of our house. Uh, so I, I don't use the wheelchair. Um, I, uh, I walk to my pickup truck. I've got hand controls in the truck. I drive to work. Uh, I get up here to my office. And um, again, I, I'm a little slower than I used to be, but uh, that's the only difference. And so um, I, I find myself relatively normal, but you have to be a problem solver because, um, you know, I, I was at my daughter's house for uh, Thanksgiving. You know, it's it's an older place. And, and so the doors aren't wide enough, uh, you know, for a wheelchair to go through. They aren't wide enough for my walker. And so, you know, I, just the the act of getting into the bathroom, I'd have to fold my walker up. I'd have to stand myself against the door, pull it in, shut the door uh, in, in pretty confined quarters. But uh, um, again, that's another example of that adaptive and overcome mentality. Some incredibly inspiring words from Kyle Kozad, his book, Relentless Positivity, released last month right around Veterans Day and available now from Ballast Books, wherever books are sold. I want to thank all our guests that we look back on in our retrospective of 2022, including the ones that we played you excerpts from today, Janet Sanders, Roger Smith, Bruce McLaughlin, Landau Eugene Murphy Jr., and the authors of the 20-Year War, Special Forces Vets Tom Aminta, Dan Blakely, and their longtime friend, award-winning photojournalist Bo Simmons. Great conversations. Sure do hope you like what you heard. If you do, 
Subscribe at any of the podcast platforms. We're everywhere now. iHeartMedia, Spotify, wherever you get your podcast, And tell a friend. Back with new episodes every Tuesday morning. It's the Big Time Talker Podcast, brought to you in part by SpeakerMatch.com. From our studios here in Washington, D.C., I'm Burke Allen. Thank you so much for listening. Happy New Year. Here's to a great 2023. Now, wherever you go, whatever you do, be good to somebody.